You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. I want to thank you for joining us on this kind of amazing fall day. I feel like fall's been a little different this year. I think in all of the turmoil and everything that's been going on, there's just something that's like comforting about the leaves changing colors and being reminded like, hey, the world's still turning like it normally does uh, because everything else just feels so so on edge, so up in the air. You know, we're three weeks away from election day and in years past, I always look forward to the week after the election because no more political ads, no more, you know, arguing and bickering and we're just kind of, we can move forward. But this year feels a little different. Um, feels like our country's on edge. I don't know if, if anyone feels really confident of what the next six months holds for us. We're polarized, we're anxious, and we're really angry. There's more anger in our political system than there's been in a really, really long time. Just a few weeks ago, Politico, they did a survey, they released the data that said one in three Americans now believe violence is sometimes justified in achieving political goals. One in three. Furthermore, Part of that study, they found that roughly 40% of both Republicans and Democrats believe that there would be at least a little justification for violence if the opposing candidate wins. Those are sobering statistics. There's a lot of people talking like, how do we get here? Why are we so angry? And I think part of it's the 24 hours news cycle. It's the constant connectivity. It's the ideological echo chambers. But if we step back, and you know, I was a history major in college. I'm fascinated by history. Politics has always been something that people are very impassioned about. And politics oftentimes has led throughout human history to violence. And the reason why is because we look at our world and we want it to be better. We see things happening and we think that shouldn't happen. You know, we are on track right now to put a person on Mars within 20 years. And yet this year, 5 million children will die of preventable diseases. And so somehow we're we're shooting for the stars and yet we can't even make sure that every child on this earth has clean water or access to basic 
healthcare. We look at this, and we can, we can do that with almost any issue in our society. We look and we think it could be better. If we just had better leaders, we could do more, we could care more, we could achieve more. Life would be better. And so while I don't celebrate at all, and I, I mourn the divisions in our country, I do understand the passion that leads to them. Richard Lovelace, he was a theologian. He, he described kind of what's going on right now in, in every election cycle so well. He wrote, he said, one of the ruling passions of humanity is the search for a righteous government. The poor and the disadvantaged contend against the system with the conviction that another economic order will make this world livable. Every four years, the American people elect a new president with the hope that somehow this will make things better. Economic downturns, crop failures, moral declines, and worsening international conditions, we could say pandemics or throw any other number of things in there, they're all blamed on presidents who, in most cases, have little control over events. Then the hearts of the people is a groping, inarticulate conviction that if the right ruler would only come along, the world would be healed of all of its wounds. Creation is headless and desperately searching for its head. Now, we gather here week in and week out because we do believe that the right ruler has come along. We gather here because we believe that Jesus Christ is the one that God has sent who will heal the world of all of its ills, all of its sins, all of its wounds, and who will make all things new. And the text we're looking at today, this is a you know, really central text in the New Testament. It's the text where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and makes his kingship known. And even by his entry into Jerusalem here, this triumphal entry, this Palm Sunday passage, we learn a lot about what kind of king Jesus is. And so we're going to press into this text. I want to walk through it line by line, and then we're going to step back and ask, what does this teach us about the kingship of Jesus? But before we do that, I would like to pray, and I invite you to pray with me. Father, we pray for the coming weeks in our country. We pray that on a national level, state, local level, even in the level of our homes, that you would raise up people of wisdom and temperance, people who are patient, who are peacemakers, not peacekeepers necessarily, but peacemakers. We pray for people in our society right now who are struggling with deep depression, with anxiety, paralyzed by fear. We pray for people who are sick with this virus, people who are terrified of getting sick with this virus because of health conditions. Lord, we desperately need your help. I pray for us this morning as we open your word that we we would come to it hungry and thirsty, knowing that you have the words of eternal life and there is nowhere else we can go. I pray that these wouldn't just be, this wouldn't be just an interesting a story or a historical account, but we would actually, by your spirit, we would see what this teaches us about ultimate reality and about you and what it means for us. And so give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that might receive truths here. Convict us where we need to be convicted of sin in our life and comfort us 
where we're discouraged or we're beat down or we feel hopeless. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. To really understand this passage, I think it's helpful to go back about five chapters, chapter 16, so we can get a running start and know all that's led up to this. In chapter 16, Jesus had this a, a very important, a, a defining conversation with his disciples in which he told them two things. Number one, he told them that he was indeed Israel's promised king. He's the one that had been prophesied about in the Old Testament. He's the one that people had spent centuries looking for and longing for and waiting for. So he said, I'm the king. The second thing he told his disciples was that as their king, he needs to go to Jerusalem and he needs to suffer mockery, mistreatment, and he needs to die. He's going to be brutally executed by the powers that be. Now, the disciples, they didn't know what to do with these two things. Like, how do you hold this? He's the great king. We've waited for the Messiah, the one who's going to bring all this victory. And he's going to die. They couldn't hold both of those things together. But he had foretold both of those things. And he had told them, that's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. And he actually says in 16, I'm setting my face. We're on our journey to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem for them, it wasn't just a city. Jerusalem was the very center of the world for the Jewish people, both then and now. The name means city of peace, but it's in Jerusalem where the temple was. And the temple was the unique place where God's spirit dwelt in a unique way. It's where heaven met earth. It was the very center of the world. And so Jesus says, we've got to go to Jerusalem, and that's when everything is going to come to a head. That's when the promises are going to be fulfilled. I'm going to take my throne, and I'm going to die. And so for six chapters, they've been on this road trip to Jerusalem, and they've had some detours along the way. Well, here in verse 1, Matthew tells us when they drew near to Jerusalem. And that's Matthew's way of saying, okay, we're getting to the end of the story. And Matthew chapter 21 through 28, that covers a span of about seven days, more or less. The first 20 chapters of Matthew cover 33 years. Here, eight chapters seven days. Time is slowing to a crawl in the narrative. And everything that happens from this point on is just pregnant and filled with so much meaning, including the triumphal entry. I didn't go to church much growing up. Uh, We went every once in a while. We'd go around Easter, which is probably why I know the story. But for the longest time, I thought the triumphal entry, Jesus, this whole story, I thought it was kind of the spontaneous thing, like Jesus was wandering around. He's like, hey, we should go to Jerusalem. And then as he's on his way there, everyone gets excited. We love Jesus. He's awesome. He heals people. And get up on the donkey. And he's like, oh, shucks. Okay. And then he gets on the donkey and kind of rolls into Jerusalem. But really what Matthew shows us here is there's nothing random or happenstance at all about Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. It's very, very much planned I mean, every, everything that's happening here is planned, it's calculated, it's prophetic, and it's provocative. That Jesus, he has put a lot of thought into how he's going to show up in Jerusalem for this last and final confrontation with the authorities. And so in verse 1, Matthew tells us that when they drew near to Jerusalem, okay, we're getting to the end here, and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. This is, 
you know, not a big mountain, but it's a pretty big hill, really, really small mountain, that when you stand on it, you can actually look and you've got a panoramic view of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is up here. He's got his disciples. We know there are other people. There is a crowd following and they're looking down on Jerusalem. It's like the anticipation is building. The suspense is building. And we're told that at that place, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, this passage has always fascinated me. Like, I don't know if Jesus is just like, this is a magic word, the Lord needs them, and people will just receive that, or if this is something that Jesus had actually planned beforehand. I tend to think, don't have any definitive proof, that Jesus had actually set this up. He'd already talked to the people who owned the donkey and the colt. And the reason I think this is, this area of Bethphage, it was right next to the city of Bethany. And Bethany is where two of Jesus' closest friends were from, Mary and Martha. And it was in Bethany, that's where Jesus performed one of his greatest miracles when he raised Lazarus from the dead. So the people in this region, they knew Jesus. They'd seen or at least heard about this man and about the miraculous things that he had done. He spent so much time there so he knew where the animals would be stabled. And I think when Jesus tells his disciples to go and get the donkey and the colt and says, the Lord needs it. What he's really saying, he says, go tell the people I'm on my way into Jerusalem. See, in sending for the crowds, or in sending for the donkeys, Jesus was actually, he was sending for the crowds. He was saying, here I come. And this is the only occasion in all the Gospels where we ever hear of Jesus riding an animal. He walked everywhere. In fact, he walked about 100 miles from Caesarea Philippi to where they are right now. And so it's not that Jesus is tired or he's run out of energy. It's very deliberate that he wants to ride a donkey on his way into Jerusalem. And Matthew tells us why. It's a deeply symbolic act. Matthew he says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. That's the prophet Zechariah saying, if you want to look this up, it's Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, that's a name for Jerusalem. Say to the daughter of Zion, say to Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, Jesus knew this prophecy. Everyone would know this great prophecy. And even more, these people knew, knew the history of God's people throughout the ages. They knew like David, for instance, King David. When he returned to Jerusalem after Absalom's rebellion, he rode this exact trail and he rode on a donkey. And when David's son, when he was anointed king, he too was put on a donkey and he rode a donkey to his inauguration. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to ride a donkey into Jerusalem, that was deeply symbolic. It was very much planned. It was reminiscent of how God in the past had honored and inaugurated kings. Everything about this affair is planned, even the timing. We know if we keep this in context that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the first day of Passover. Passover was a week-long 
celebration that commemorated God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. It was a time when thousands, tens of thousands would flock to Jerusalem to celebrate what God had done to make sacrifices. And so Jesus, he sets up this plan, gets the crowd, gets the donkey. He knows there's going to be so many people. And he chooses this as the moment to ride into Jerusalem. He's not reluctantly being swept into this. It's planned and it's provocative. And here's what I mean. For the first three years of Jesus's public ministry, he sought to actively avoid the spotlight. He, like, he didn't want press. And actually, when he would, if you've read the gospels, you've come across these stories, he would heal someone or perform some miracle. And then people would say, oh, you're the son of David, you're the Messiah. And he would say, shh. Matthew 9, two blind men cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. And he, and he heals them and then he strictly charges them, but don't tell anyone. They don't listen to him. They go and tell everyone. But then what's really interesting is in Matthew 20, the passage that precedes this one, Jesus encounters two blind men again. They cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus heals them but this time he doesn't tell them to be quiet. This time he doesn't say, keep my identity hidden. This time he leaves that affair and then hops on a donkey to ride into Jerusalem like a king. It was planned. It was provocative. And we're told that the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, put put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And then most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Now think about that. They didn't have closets like we do back then. They didn't have wardrobes. Like if you had a cloak, that was your cloak, and you probably only had one cloak. And here are these people taking their cloaks, throwing them on the dirty, dusty, muddy road. They're tearing off branches, Matthew tells us, all spreading them on the road, all so that Jesus can can have a red carpet entrance into Jerusalem. Matthew tells us that the crowds that went before him, verse 9, and that followed him were shouting, went before, before and after, I mean everyone around, were shouting, Hosanna, which literally means save us. Hosanna, son of David which was a, a name pregnant with meaning. I mean, son of David, the promised king, the one we've been waiting for. Save us, O king. Save us. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 10. When this parade comes to an end, when they reach their goal, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Stirred up here, as some translations might say excited, it's not excited like enthusiastically excited. I mean, the city is on edge because of Jesus and this crowd and everything that he's done and how he's showing up. And people are saying, who is this man? Who's this man who's acting like he's God's great gift to the world? Who's this man strolling around Jerusalem like he 
owns the place? Who's this man who's acting like he is the king, reveling in the praise of all of these peasants? I mean, this is provocative, especially when you remember that Jerusalem already had leaders. They already had high priests and a chief priest, Caiaphas. They already had a king, Caesar. And yet Jesus rolls in, acting like he's the king. I mean, the modern-day equivalent, putting it in modern terms, imagine that a man from Scranton, Pennsylvania, shows up in D.C. with a few big buses of people. They get out at the National Mall and start setting up bleachers. And then they start to do a presidential inauguration ceremony. Like it would be bizarre. And people, some people would be like, who does this guy think he is? Some people might get swept in, but eventually what will happen? The authorities will come and shut it down. Because there's already a king. There's already a president. There's already someone in power. And what Jesus is doing here is he's challenging the systems that are, the systems that are in place, the people that are in place. He's exerting his authority. And the first lesson, the first thing we learn about the kingship of Jesus in this text is that he is the authoritative king. Now, I recognize that's a bit redundant. Of course, the king is authoritative. But sometimes when we talk about Jesus as king, I don't think we actually... I don't think we give proper attention to the concept that Jesus claims absolute authority over everything. Every corner of this world and every corner of our lives. And when Jesus rolls into Jerusalem here with all this pomp and circumstance, with this kingly swagger, what he's doing, the religious establishment, they've known about Jesus, they had plotted to kill him, but then he disappeared and they probably just hoped that he was going away. What he's doing here is he's forcing their hand. Saying, you gotta do something with me. I'm not gonna go quietly or gently into that night. I'm here and I'm claiming to be king. And if this weren't provocative enough, what happens right after this? Jesus strolls into the temple and acts like he owns the place, and starts turning over tables. He grabs a whip and starts driving people out. After that, Jesus is talking with the religious leaders, and he starts telling them some really pretty dark and strange stories about God's coming judgment on his people. And then after that, Matthew 23, he delivers a sermon, but it's really more of just a searing indictment. I mean, some of the harshest things Jesus ever said towards the scribes. And the Pharisees. Jesus, he's picking a fight, and at the heart of this fight is the question of authority. And Jesus, he's claiming to be king over all. And he's saying to them, and he's saying to us, you can either crown me or you can kill me, but there's no room to just kind of like me. You can bow down and worship me or you can oppose me, but there is no middle ground. And this is why the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman authorities who make very strange bedfellows, they show up and they combine their their powers and their forces to have Jesus arrested and put to death. 
It's the authority piece. That's what made him so polarizing in that day. And that's what makes him so polarizing in our day. Because Jesus, he doesn't offer his teachings as much as we might want him to. He doesn't offer his teachings as a buffet that we can pick and choose from. I would love some of this. That's kind of disgusting. I will take some of this. You know, as Pastor Tim Keller once said, when people do that, when you you pick and choose, you're like, I really like this stuff, so I'm going to take that. It's not Jesus that you're agreeing with. It's yourself, and you're just using him to back up your already formed beliefs. Jesus doesn't allow for that. He says, if you're going to come to me, you've got to come on my terms. And you got to receive my word, everything, all of my words that must be received, taken to heart, and obeyed. You know, to paint with probably way too broad of a brush, I see in our culture a lot right now that there's a lot of people who love the Jesus that cares for the poor and is a voice for the oppressed, and that's very much who Jesus is. But at the same time, there's not as much love for the Jesus who calls us to forgive others, to serve, to humble oneself, to take the posture of a slave. You know, something I've heard repeated over the years as a pastor is, you know, I like Jesus, don't really like the church, and I don't want to minimize the hurt that the church can cause in people's lives. I've witnessed it, I've experienced it myself. But sometimes when people use language like that, I can't help but feel that sometimes it's a smokescreen to divert from the bigger issue. When people say that, and I don't say this because I'm a pastor and as pastors, we're nice people. But when people say, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church, I always want to respond, really? You like the Jesus who claims absolute authority over your time, over your bank account, over your sexuality, over your relationships, Do you really like the Jesus who told the young ruler to sell all he had and give it away to the poor? Do you really like the Jesus who said that following him was so important that he told a grieving son who just lost his father to let the dead bury their own dead? Do you really like the Jesus who calls all of his disciples to love their enemies, not their, you know, the enemies in their imagination, I mean, real human beings that they don't get along with? He said, you need to love them. You need to forgive them. You need to deny yourself and you need to take up my cross. This is what made Jesus polarizing then and polarizing now. And he doesn't fit into a box. He's an authoritative king. And if we're going to come to him, we don't come on our terms. We come on his terms. It's the first thing we see here. The second thing, yes, he's the authoritative king. And I think part of the reason we bristle at authority is we don't feel like we can trust authority. Maybe we've, we've seen people abuse their authority. It makes us uneasy when someone claims that kind of authority. Well, Jesus, he's not just the authoritative king. He's also the servant king. He's a king not who came to just throw his weight around. He's a king who came to serve and to carry burdens. Now, this is 
kind of category breaking for most of us. It was category breaking for the people in that day. I mean, when you look at the enthusiasm of the crowds as he's rolling in and they're crying out, save us, save us. John tells us they're waving palm branches, which was a symbol of military victory and celebration. It's really clear what the crowds thought. They thought, finally, finally the Messiah's come who's going to set us free from the evil Romans. But there was a problem, and they didn't seem to pick up on it at that time. The problem is if Jesus' plan was to overthrow Rome, he would have come into the city riding a war horse, a stallion. But instead, Jesus is riding a donkey. You know, when you see someone riding a donkey, you don't feel threatened or intimidated by them. You feel sympathy for them. No one's ever been terrified. Oh no, he's riding at me with the donkey. I mean, putting it in modern day terms, I I think of this like, imagine the president of the United States showed up to their inauguration in a 1989 rusted out Ford Escort hatchback. Like it's in my mind, one of my best friends had those when we turned 16. I'll never forget. I mean, just a junker, a beater. What would that tell you about the president? Might tell you, gosh, this president knows what it's like for most Americans, knows what it's like to struggle to make ends meet. This is a president who's familiar with being poor and lowly. And I think that there's a part of us that would say, we would love that, but in reality, search human history In reality, what do people really want? We want people who can flex their power. And we see this even in Matthew's gospel. Jesus shows up on a donkey saying, I am the authoritative king, but I'm lowly, I'm humble, and I'm a servant. And people struggled with Jesus being this kind of king. And we know this because less than a week after this, Pilate, because it's Passover week and celebration, he always would give, there is a, a tradition where he would let one prisoner go. And at this point, Jesus has been arrested. And he said, do you guys want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? Now, we don't know a ton about Barabbas, but we do know that he was an insurrectionist. We do know that he led an uprising against Rome. We do know that he was the kind of guy who wasn't afraid to throw his weight around, to wield a sword, to ride a war horse, and we know that Jesus rode a donkey, endured insults, mockery, mistreatment, and even stepped in when his disciples tried to pull a sword and said, put the sword away. When he did that, the people had a choice. They said, who do you want? And they said, give us Barabbas. Because Jesus, so often, he's not the kind of king that we want, but he is the kind of king we need. And that's the meaning of the triumphal entry. That's the meaning of the donkey. Palm Sunday, it's this incredible parable, we could call it, of the lifelong mismatch between what we want from God and what God actually provides. We all want so many things from God. I would guess most of you came in this morning wanting something from God wanting God to do something or to show up in some way or to provide you with something or to fix something. 
And Palm Sunday shows that while our run, once, I, I want to be careful. I don't think they're always wrong. And I don't think there's any, any problem with presenting all of our requests, all of our longings, all of our desires to God. I think we should do that. But both scripture and experience teach us that God, he often doesn't give us what we want because what we want is almost always shallow and superficial compared to what we really need. The Jewish people on that day, they wanted liberation from their oppressors and that's not wrong at all. But if Jesus gave the Jewish people in that day victory over the Romans, what would happen? They got all the power, what would happen? Would they rule with justice and kindness over all of humanity from that point forevermore? No. You give it some time, study history, before long they become the oppressors. And the reason humanity is stuck in this endless cycle where we feel like we can never, we can never make the progress we want to make is because the problems in the world are not just out there. The problems are not just structural or systemic, and they're not just personal. The problem is sin, and sin runs so deep, runs so deep in the soil of this earth and through our very veins. And Jesus He's the kind of king who's not come to deal with some of these problems as much as he's come to deal with the big problem. If he just liberated the Jews from political oppression without dealing with the source of all oppression, which is sin, he'd just be kicking the ball down the field. But Jesus came to deal with the problems beneath all of our problems. He came to deal with the problems in us. He came to free us from our slavery to sin. He's not the kind of king that we choose, but he's the kind of king that we need. And he's the kind of king, when you really think about it, he's the kind of king that you want. Do you want a God that you, you have to wince around? Do you want a God who knows nothing of what it's like to walk this earth and to be in hard relationships or a hard marriage or to suffer or to be tired? Do you want a God who can't relate with you whatsoever? In commenting on this passage, Martin Luther once wrote, he said, look at him. He rides no stallion, which is a war animal, and he comes not with fearful pomp and power, but he sits on a donkey, which is no war animal, but which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. Thereby he shows that he did not come to terrify people, to drive or oppress them, but to help them to carry their burdens and take them on himself. Jesus is the authoritative king, but he's also the servant king. He's a king who came not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. He's the one who came to rule and save, not by taking power and killing and flexing, but by losing power and dying for us. And he's the kind of king who can relate to us as we are where we are. not as we wish we were, as we'd like to pretend we were. And so if you're here this morning, you're watching online, you're not a Christian, you're kind of circling around the church, maybe you're interested, maybe something's gone wrong in your life. It's oftentimes why we show up to church in the first place. 
things just feel off or something's broken and you want healing, or maybe you want God to solve some particular problem. If that's you, I want you to know that God offers you something so much more. He offers you himself. And he's a God who knows, who cares, who's entered in, and who's eager to carry your burdens. You don't have to bring anything to the table. You can come to the king with open hands and with your sin. Say, I need forgiveness, I need mercy, and I need help. I said earlier in the liturgy, God, a broken and contrite heart, God will never despise. If you're here and you're a Christian, just a couple of thoughts for you in light of this and in light of the election season we're in where everyone's stressed and people are on edge. I pray for us, my prayer for us is that we would be a people, you know, for the rest of our lives, in particular the next four weeks, we would be thinking, is my life bearing witness to the fact that there is one true king and he's already come? Is my, are my actions bearing truth to the fact that Jesus is the one true king? Do I really believe that that Jesus' love is what makes us loving, that his forgiveness is what leads us to become people who forgive, that him leveraging his power to serve is what makes us servants. I don't want to denigrate the political process at all. Vote matters. Who we elect matters. It does have very real implications, but it's not going to change the world. What will change the world is when the Spirit of God, as the Spirit of God, shows up in the lives of God's people And instead of being people who steal and take and destroy and try to get on top, we become people who love, who forgive, who serve. That's how we live into our calling to be salt and light. And that's the kind of revolution Jesus came to bring about. And Jesus, he gave us a gift to remind us of this, to remind us of the kind of people we are and what it means to be his, his disciples. The night before his crucifixion. It's just a few days after he rode into Jerusalem. He sat down with his disciples, took a loaf of bread. This is so familiar to us, but I just wonder what it was like for them the first time. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the cup of the new covenant poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. And for 2,000 years now, Christians across racial divides, economic divides, political divides, geographical divides, we've all partaken in this meal. That's what unites us, and it's what keeps us humble, reminding us that Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we can come to the table as we are confessing our sins, but we also come to the table knowing who he desires and longs for us to be, a people who offer our lives for the lives of others. So if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to take part in the Lord's Supper. Be reminded that there is forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ, but also be reminded that he empowers us and sustains us so that we might go live lives honoring him. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening.
For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.